listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. There is a long and venerable tradition of reading tonight's passage from Isaiah on this day, the Feast of the Epiphany. It's easy to see why. Not only is the prophet working with all of this imagery of light cutting through the earth's darkness, which is very much the theme of this Epiphany season, There's also that verse at the end that feels like it connects very directly with the gospel reading from Matthew. A multitude of camels shall cover you, young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come, and they shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. I mean, you got camels, you got gold, you got frankincense. You kind of picture the three kings of greeting card fame arriving on their camels in Bethlehem, can't you? Now, no doubt the gospel writer did want his reader to make the connections. But it does a disservice to both Matthew as a storyteller and Isaiah as a poet just to stop there. As if Matthew had gone on a sort of a hunt and peck word search for proof texts from the Hebrew Scriptures to shore up his own story. Now, there's no question that Matthew wants to show a through line from these ancient Hebrew texts to the dawning of the light of Christ, but I don't believe it was in a sort of a narrow, "Ah, I'll prove it to you, sort of a way. Maybe more pressing, though, is to try to see what Isaiah was originally working with. If he's not some sort of a a seer gazing into a crystal ball and looking at kings and a baby in Bethlehem, what is it that he's doing? What is he telling forth? Closing six chapters of Isaiah have in view the return of the exiles from their time of internment in Babylon, returning to begin to rebuild Jerusalem and its temple, and to begin to rebuild their lives back home. In fact, that return had been the great dream and hope all of the way through their time in exile. The problem is that dreams big dreams, ideal dreams, can become very thorny to actually implement. I mean, it's a little bit like in government. You know, it's way easier to be the opposition party than to be the governing party. Because as the opposition party, you know, you can call all the highest ideals in the world. It's a government that's going to kind of actually implement things. Same here in Babylon, very easy to dream and idealize the rebuilding. Back home, how do you do it? I mean, first of all, the the raw physical task of rebuilding the temple is daunting. How do you even start? 
It's a people with this collective memory passed down from their forebears of Solomon's grand temple that was laid waste by the Babylonian Empire. They still have this picture, this image, this ideal, yet when they return to the city, they find only broken walls and rubble. Even more thorny, though, was the the question of national identity, Jewish-Israelite identity post-Babylon. Now, there was clearly, very clearly, a position that pushed for a fairly narrow rather exclusionist version of national identity, what it means to be Israel. That's in evidence in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, particularly in the 10th chapter of the book of Ezra, in which an agreement is made amongst the people that the men, the Israelite men, should divorce any Gentile woman they had previously married, perhaps in Babylon and that they should send that divorced woman away, along with her children, away into their own kind of economic and social exile, of course. But we need to do this to keep Israel pure. Now, that's a bit of an ironic path for Israel, of course, given that their greatest, their archetypal king, King David, was actually himself the grandson of a mixed marriage between the Moabite woman Ruth and the Israelite man Boaz. The Hebrew Scriptures are actually never shy of letting such apparent contradictions and tensions simply sit there, almost with one text pushing the other. One of the tensions that is in real evidence in the Bible is between that exclusionist sort of view, that that pure view of rebuilding and serving God, and the far more expansive, oftentimes startling vision of the prophet Isaiah. We see it in evidence four chapters before our reading tonight began. When the prophet proclaims, Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord, say, The Lord will surely separate me from this people. Don't let that happen. And do not let the eunuch say, I'm just a dry tree, I'm nothing. From that starting point in Isaiah 56, the starting point with the the Gentile outsider and the eunuch, the dishonored eunuch, long considered an abomination under the law, Isaiah holds forth this vision that says there will be a place for all. That Gentile foreigner, that disgraced eunuch, all who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, who hold fast my covenant. Matters of having the wrong lineage, the wrong bloodline, or even of being someone formerly thought of as being a disgraceful abomination, those considerations are declared null and void by the prophet. You are named as one of God's people simply by living as if you actually believed it. Live what you say you believe. Live covenant. What this really means is that that exclusionist sort of view that called for ethnic purity and for putting out 
the other, comes under a powerful critique from Isaiah and from all those whose imaginations were caught by his poetic and prophetic voice. And so, in the reading tonight, when we hit those verses that say things like, Nations shall come to your light, kings to the brightness of your dawn, or the wealth of the nations shall come to you, they mean that an inclusive openness to the other that expansive vision that wants to make room is in fact not a burden, but the beginning of abundance. Not just for Israel either, but for all. So as Walter Brueggemann summarizes it, the poet, Isaiah, the poet envisions a wondrous capitulation of the nations who have for very long been superior to Israel in exploitive ways. Now there is in this vision, this dream, this hope, a reconciliation that produces abundance for all. There is no room for chanting, build that wall, build that wall, build that wall. Not on Epiphany, not in the ancient world, not in ours. Now I suspect that Isaiah hoped and dreamed that this was all unfolding then and there. If not in his own immediate lifetime, then certainly within the next few generations this would happen. It, it didn't. Not in the way he imagined at that point. It didn't. And in fact, over the next few hundred years, Israel found itself again under the rule of exploitive empires. First of all, the Seleucid Empire, and then the Roman Empire. Yet had Isaiah been able to see that those empires were on the horizon, he still would have needed to sing his song, because his song was God's song. And God's song cannot be boxed and packaged and made to behave. The harmonies of God's song take their own time in being sounded. And so it was that 500 years after Isaiah, Matthew began to hear the music of the poet, Isaiah, sounding in his own story, in the story he needed to tell. There's the prophet's dream again. Magi from the east. Consummate outsiders, right? consummate outsiders from an entirely different religious and cultural world. Magi come in search of the one they believe is born to be king. They're alerted by a star. They are star watchers. They find their way to Jerusalem, to the royal city, makes all the sense in the world, but there they find, no, there's not a royal son in the palace. There they also discover through the scribes the ancient Hebrew scriptures that have this hint about Bethlehem, the town that King David came from. And so they're on the road again. And in time they find not a royal son, but a peasant baby. They find him not in the palace corridors, but in simple temporary quarters in Bethlehem. 
a town entirely unremarkable, except Matthew wants us to notice that it is the town that David came from. Otherwise, nowhere. Though the land is held under the grip of an exploitive empire yet again, with a puppet king named Herod harshly ruling his own little quarter of it under the very watchful eye of that Roman empire, even there the Magi do see light in the darkness. Inexplicably, the light shines in the face of a baby. And though it is beyond all reasoning and expectation, they see it and they believe it. The words of Samuel Gier, the epiphany story of the Magi with hints of the fantastic. And it does have hints of the fantastic, of course. The star watchers and the long journey and following all the way through the conflict with Herod. The epiphany story of the Magi with hints of the fantastic draws the magnificent, vivid vision of Isaiah 60 into the orbit of a small child. To the light, the glory of the Lord is revealed in the weakness of a child. No pyrotechnics, just a simple encounter of those from afar with the light who drew them to himself. And yet, it really is then just a beginning. The road that child will eventually walk is no easy or triumphalist one. In fact, as Matthew continues his story, death squads are sent in to Bethlehem to try to find the child at the cost of killing all of the male babies under two. And as we sang in the song tonight, based on that passage from Isaiah and on the gospel story, Jesus was a refugee. And truthfully, all the way through, He is a sort of a refugee. It's not an easy road, never triumphalist. And truthfully, we still wait for the fullness of the light. For our own world is yet torn by exploitive empires, by conflicts. And in our day, it is increasingly driven by a call for some form of ethnic purity and exclusion whether it's ISIS in the Middle East or Palestinians and Israelis looking across walls at each other or on our own continent with its current tensions bubbling. But still, arise, shine, for our light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon us as we wait, await its fullness we do as the foreigners and the eunuchs of Isaiah's time were called to do, namely, to embrace the proclamation we have been gifted with, the proclamation that we have been named as among God's people, God's children, and then to do all we can to live that out now as if we truly and deeply believe it. Welcome to the great season of Epiphany. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, 
visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.